Welcome to Sleep Talk Snapshots, bringing you the latest on sleep from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington, a sleep physician. Welcome to this Sleep Talk Snapshot, bringing you highlights from day two of the Sleep 2016 meeting here in Denver. If you want to find more of our Sleep Talk podcasts, you can find them at sleephub.com.au forward slash podcast, in iTunes or other podcast apps, or download the Sleep Talk app from the IRS store. Today's been another great day of stimulating discussion and really challenging some of the things that we do in sleep medicine. There's two areas I wanted to focus on today, narcolepsy and sleep apnea. With regards to narcolepsy, very often the focus of management is on medication. Unfortunately, currently available medications are often only partially effective and often don't address all of the symptoms of narcolepsy. So there is a need to look at other treatments. In one of the postgraduate courses yesterday, behavioural sleep medicine approaches were discussed by Jason Ong, and I wanted to find out a bit more about that. So I'm with Jason Ong from Rush University, and Jason, we see a lot of people with narcolepsy, and often napping is the non-drug strategy, but outside of napping, what other behavioural strategies are available for narcolepsy? Well, it's uh, really open. Uh, it's right now, it's not very well defined. Um, I think napping has received the most attention, um, does have some research evidence, but I think there's so many other areas where behavioral sleep medicine can help people with uh, hypersomnia, with uh, narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, I think one of the biggest areas is to uh, give them some ways to help cope with chronic sleepiness, cope with their symptoms. And if you look at the treatment literature, there's really nothing about that. We treat their symptoms, their daytime sleepiness. Uh, for narcolepsy, if they have cataplexy, there's some medications targeting that. But we don't teach people how to live with narcolepsy. We don't teach people how to live with idiopathic hypersomnia. And I think in behavioral sleep medicine, one of the things that uh, we're usually pretty good at is helping people cope with uh, chronic illnesses. Um, uh, really, I should say behavioral medicine, you know, that's an area where we've been quite successful whether it's coping with people who have cancer, um, chronic pain. So I think there's things that we can borrow from those areas to help people uh, and improve their quality of life, living with narcolepsy and uh, idiopathic hypersomnia. So if you're trying to design that type of program, what are the pieces you put into it? Yeah, so we're trying to do some things. Uh, I, I would say one thing, for example, is uh, even if you're going to implement these regular naps, you also have to have a little bit of a cognitive intervention because most of us think that we are awake continuously for 14, 16 hours during the day. But if you split up your day, and, and I use the term Pomodoro technique because that actually comes from a time management strategy where you take large chunk of time and split it into smaller chunks of time. Um, we might have to reconceptualize wakefulness. So helping people with narcolepsy say, look, don't think about wakefulness as being 14 hours in a row. Think about it in smaller chunks, maybe four to six hours, followed by a scheduled nap, maybe another four to five hours, followed by another nap period. So breaking up the day that way, I think that's as much of a cognitive intervention as it is a behavioral intervention, uh, just to give an example. Great. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Great to hear from Jason and to hear that other treatments for narcolepsy are under development. And I think they offer promise to help people with narcolepsy make inroads into managing their symptoms. The second area that I wanted to talk about today was sleep apnea. The study by Britton uh, et al. in JAMA in 2015, looking at CPAP and mandibular advancement splints and their effect on blood pressure, has been quoted a couple of times already in this meeting. I'm a big fan of mandibular advancement splints or oral appliances as sleep apnea treatments. And really nice to see in this meta-analysis that looked both at CPAP and mandibular advancement splints and their effect on blood pressure, 
that they were equally effective treatments if the outcome was blood pressure. There was an average of around a 2 millimetre of mercury drop in both systolic and diastolic blood pressure with either treatment. The second study that really challenges for me uh, clinical practice is a study by Zuetal in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine in 2015. This was a bench study that looked at comparing different auto-titrating PAP devices and seeing how they responded to a range of respiratory events. (laughs) The frightening thing for someone in clinical practice like myself is all the machines responded differently. It just really goes to show, you know, how on earth do I know what's happening out there in the community when my patients go and buy an APAP device and are out there using it in the wild? And makes me wonder, do I really need to stick with one or two manufacturers and really understand their algorithms? And that's a bit of an unanswered question. For the A to Z of sleeping well, head to the hub, sleephub.com.au. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.